You're listening to The Word of Hope, a radio ministry of Hope Lutheran Church in Aurora, Colorado. Our preacher is Pastor Brian Wolfmuller with today's Word of Hope. In the name of Jesus, amen. Dear Saints, Merry Christmas and Happy New Year. We finished the Feast of Christmas today, the, the, the time of Christmas, on the twelfth day. So we're looking out for the twelve lords a-leaping, making sure they don't come around. But we do, it is a, a stunning sort of thing that we continue to celebrate Christmas even as the world has already wound things down. The trees have come down in most places, the lights have been turned off, uh, and the kind of the season of Christmas that the world would have is over. But we continue on praising Jesus for His birth. But as we do this, we, we are continually attacked at least it would seem like it, that the text is continually attacking our Christmas sentimentality. Do you, do you know this, what I'm talking about? We, we have this idea of what Christmas should be like. It's probably, it probably is a mixture of all the best childhood memories from Christmas, and when there's any blanks, we fill it in with the pictures from Christmas cards and Norman Rockwell paintings, you know, where the snow is just, just freshly fallen and is fresh and clean, and everybody is happy, and you get just the presents that you want. The fire is there burning constantly, and you never have to go outside in the cold to get more wood. I mean, everything is just, you know, how the, the perfect kind of picture. And I, and I think the danger is that we take that kind of picture of Christmas, and we bring it over to the Christmas story in the Scripture text. And we have kind of a, a soft or cleaned-up picture of the nativity how it was when Jesus was born. We, we see the Holy Family there, and, it, and they're in a nice, warm, very comfortable barn, <laughs> surrounded by well-groomed and nice-smelling animals. <laughs> and everything seems soft and gentle. Everyone's smiling. And this is nice. But the Scriptures are taking pains to let us know that things were much, much different than this. Things were much more humble. In fact, they were much more tenuous. The church is helping us. I mean, from ancient times, the church is helping us. It appoints three feasts for the three days after Christmas. The feast of St. Stephen, the very first martyr who was stoned to death after confessing Jesus in the book of Acts, December 26th. The feast of St. John, who was pastor and evangelist, became bishop in Ephesus, but was then exiled to Patmos under the persecution of Domitian when she saw the revelation, his feast, December 27th. And then the feast of the holy innocents, the children who were murdered by Herod in Bethlehem when he was trying to destroy Jesus, December 28th. And that's the same text we have today on Christmas 2. We even had this idea of trouble in the gospel last week when Mary and Joseph bring the Christ child to the temple and there Simeon promised Mary a sword would pierce her heart. And he prophesied that this child, this Jesus, would be for the rising and falling of many in Israel. And now today we have Herod sending his soldiers to destroy the children of Bethlehem. 
Herod was an idiomite. That means he was a descendant of Esau. But even though he was not Jewish, he had the title from Caesar, the king of the Jews. And this man was wicked, utterly, utterly wicked. His, his ambition and his jealousy were unbounded by law and by reason, and he would do whatever he thought necessary to protect his power. Josephus, the, the ancient historian, writes of Herod, and, and so long and horrible is his list of murderous activities that the slaughter of the children in Bethlehem doesn't even make it onto the list. So you know that as soon as the wise man, and we hear this text tomorrow, the first part of Matthew 2 on Epiphany, as soon as the wise man asked Herod where the king of the Jews was born, things are not going to end well. And we have that ending in the text. Herod assembles his armies, I mean his soldiers there, and he gives them these most horrible instructions. No boy under three will survive. And now the wise men are traveling home by the back roads. The holy family has bundled up Jesus, only weeks old, and wrapping him up. They're running through the darkness out of town. And as they do, the cries of the mother of Bethlehem are filling the sky, unable to be comforted. This is really a horrible picture. And the last thing on our mind when we think of Christmas. But perhaps of this of all this, one thing should be clear, at least this, that Jesus did not come to make life easy. All of his classmates, what the class of 10 in Bethlehem, the graduating class of 10 or 11, all of those classmates are dead. His family is running for their lives to get to Egypt, and they're dragging all over the place. His followers, Jesus' followers, are stoned and they're exiled and they're put to death. They're ridden down by the devil. They're troubled in every different kind of way. And Jesus himself said, I came not to bring peace, but a sword. Merry Christmas. (laughs) I mean, do you see how all of this goes against the very popular and very wrong idea that Jesus came to give us our best life now, to make us healthy, wealthy, and to give us a trouble-free life. You've heard this? I mean, apparently having this theology is one of the requirements to be on TV. I mean, every TV preacher that I've ever heard has this doctrine that Jesus came to make things better in this life. But Jesus himself was not wealthy, nor was his life trouble-free. So much that the prophet Isaiah, listen, the prophet Isaiah gives Jesus the name Man of Sorrows. This is the Lord who was crucified. And if he, our Lord himself, had no place to lay his head, how will it be for us as followers? This kind of thinking that Jesus came to make things better also comes along and asks this question, which I know you've heard. You might have thought. Why do bad things happen to good people? You know that question? I don't wonder sometimes if this is the biggest theological question that keeps people out of church or out of theology. Because people simply can't understand how God could be both good and powerful and things in this world could be so crummy. In fact, I've been talking, and this comes up all the time, whenever I've been talking to people who don't believe in God. And this is where they get hung up. Things are so bad in their life that the only 
explanation that they could possibly think of was that God was evil and was out to get them. And this was such a horrible thought that they quit believing in God altogether. It was better for them to have no God than to have a God who was out to get them. You see how that works? I mean, this is a significant theological question. So what do we say to it? I mean, how do we answer the question? The problem of evil. Why bad things happen to good people. I mean, why... Yeah, that's right. Why bad things happen to good people. The first thing we say is this. Is that there are no good people. No one is good. Not even one, says St. Paul, Romans chapter 2. But the second thing we say is this. When things are not going the way they're supposed to go, and we get mad at God, think about it. We get mad at Him because He doesn't live up to our own expectations. Because God isn't doing what we thought He should do. Because the Lord of the universe didn't follow our instructions. There's been a handful of times when I was talking to atheists. We went to visit the, you know, the Denver Atheist Club and got to sit and talk with those guys. And, and they told me about the God they didn't believe in. And they would say things like this. I could never believe in a God who allows so much suffering to happen without doing anything about it. To which I would say, well, I don't believe in that God either. <laughs> the Lord does do something about suffering. But look, He doesn't do what we expect Him to do. The Lord does do something about death, about sin, about evil, but it's not what we would do. I mean, if we were all-powerful, I suppose, if I was all-powerful and I saw all this trouble in the world, what I would do is I would come after it. I would destroy evil. I would wipe out sin. I would crush the devil. I would fix what's broken in the world with my power and with my strength and with my almightiness. But that is not our God. That is not how He addresses the problem. I mean, look here in the text. Here is your God with no place to be born except in a barn. Here is your God in the arms of his stepfather Joseph fleeing for his life from Herod and his sword. Here is your God hungry, tired, and troubled, tempted, rejected, mocked, tried, and at last crucified, dead, buried. He comes in weakness, not in power. He comes not to destroy, but to be destroyed. He comes not to bring an end to suffering, but to suffer Himself. The wrath of man, the wrath of the devil, and the wrath of God to its fullest. To drink that cup all the way to the bottom. There was in the history of the world only one time when a bad thing happened to a good person, and this is it. This is the, the, the cross. And this was for you. This was for your salvation. There, all of God's wrath and all of God's anger was spent, and it was spent on Christ, which means, first of all, that God now smiles upon you. And this is, I think, as we go through the difficulties and the troubles of this world, the most important thing for us to know. For we're in trouble, or when we sin, or we're sinned against, and we're guilty, or we're ashamed, we wonder, is God mad at me? And the answer is no. And the proof is the cross. 
For God so loved the world, remember, that He gave His only begotten Son. And this is for you. So the cross stands as the unmoving proof that no matter what is going wrong in your life and, and how things are falling apart around you, no matter what, He loves you. And it cannot be undone. We've said this before, but it's, it's worth thinking about again. That you can undo God's love for you just as well as you can go and build a time machine and go back in time to the time when Jesus is on the cross and get a crowbar and pull the nails out of his hands and take him off the cross and bring him back to life. You cannot do it. You, you cannot undo his love. And this means that, that even though we suffer in this life, our suffering doesn't mean that we are far from God. Or that God has left us or abandoned us. You see, Christ has joined himself to our suffering. Just as he joined himself to our sin and joined himself to our death. So that when we suffer, we suffer with Christ. Peter has it like this in our epistle. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. Do you see all of this? Jesus being dragged down to Egypt and, and coming back. Jesus being dragged to the cross and placed in the grave. And, and, and rising on the third day and ascending into heaven. All of this, the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus with all of its twists and turns and all of the various twists and turns of your own life are all working together somehow for our salvation. I mean, our lives probably don't look like a Christmas card. <laughs> but they do look an awful lot like the Bible where things are surprisingly terrible and yet wonderful at the same time. This is altogether the Lord working in His meekness and in His humility for you to save you and to deliver you and to give you life. And so we rejoice in Christmas. That Jesus jumped down into the messiness, into the filth and the darkness of this world so that He could bring us to His eternal life. This He has done. And this He is doing. Amen. And Merry Christmas. Amen. Now may the peace of God, which passes all understanding, guard your hearts and minds through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. We hope you were blessed by today's Word of Hope. 
Hope Lutheran Church is located at 1345 Macon Street in Aurora, Colorado. Their weekly schedule is as follows. Sunday morning worship at 915, adult Bible class and youth Sunday school at 1045 a.m. On Tuesday mornings, there is a matin service at 8.30 a.m. with a Bible class to follow at 9.30 a.m. You can find out more about Hope Lutheran Church at www.hope-aurora.org. That's www.hope-aurora.org. Until next time, may the Lord bless you and keep you in His grace.